So it is back to school Sunday and Pastor Stephen asked me to share a message about the next generation to encourage our families and to inspire passion for God's kingdom. Um, And as I was thinking on this, I couldn't help but laugh and think, well, I'm only 25. I am not a father um, and I'm not even married yet, yet, soon. Um, So I was thinking I can't go up there and say things like, here's the best one nugget of advice for marriage, or here's the best um, um, knowledge or or experience I have from raising kids, because quite frankly, I understand what the word says, but I don't have that type of experience in my life. Now, in my defense, I am a part of a pretty big family, Um, as you guys can see on the screen there. That's everybody. Um, So I am 25, my brother Austin is 23, Ashton is 17, and Mikey is 15, and my parents, um, well, they're old, so I don't need to tell you. <laughs> they're not in this service, so I, don't, I, I can get away with that. Um, and also, my fiance, Maddie, we're getting married in October, so that's, that's exciting. It's right around the corner. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my fiance, Maddie, she also comes from a very large family. Um, she has five siblings. She's one of six, and a sister-in-law for a total of nine. You can see them all there. So, again, in my defense, I have experience with family um, and all of the uh, joys and complications that it brings, Um, but again, nothing with regard to marriage and parenting. However, when I begin to think about the next generation, I think about my recent experience in my college years. For those of you who don't know, I was an atheist for the first two years of my college experience. And I was far, from, far removed from the knowledge of God and immersed in a culture that was very dark, very twisted, um, with a tendency to exalt self as God um, and to make gods in our own image. So when God revealed himself to me in the truth of his son and the gospel, I began to read his word and watch the power of the word transform my life. The word of God is very near to me, not just because I know it's God's holy book, but because I watched it transform me from the inside out very deeply in many different ways of thinking. And I've seen it do the same for others. So I'm very passionate about God's word, specifically with its power to change a generation because I myself am a recipient of it. And so when I'm thinking about this generation and when I'm thinking about the darkness and the twistedness of the world that we see around us, I can't help but think, what a better time for God to raise up young ones to proclaim his gospel. I, I know it might be easy to say to yourself, well, you know, it, it's getting dark out there and, and the way the culture is going, it just seems like our young ones are doomed. But if we look in history, if we look at how God chose to move throughout the ages, we see that God chose to intervene himself when times got the darkest. For example, Jesus came to a nation of Jews who had King Herod as a ruler. King Herod was not a full Jew and was not ruling in the authority and in the governance of God. They believed that God must have abandoned them. It must be over. We don't even have a Jew on the throne. And then what happens? Jesus is born to a virgin. The king of the Jews steps onto the scene. So we know that in the darkest of times, God loves to raise up his people to exalt the light and the glory of God. And I believe we are in that hour. So my hope this morning is to encourage your perspective about the next generation. That there is not, we shouldn't just have hope, but we should have great hope because of what God is going to do with our young ones. Amen? Sound good? So my thesis this morning, if you will, is that our impact on the next generation is essential to the success of the church's influence around the world. I know that's a mouthful. 
I'll say it again. Our impact on the next generation is essential to the success of the church's influence around the world. This morning, I want to start in the book of Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus is talking in parables. This is what he says, Matthew 13, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is, a, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, I remember reading this for the first time, and I used to think about this very individualistically. I was looking at this, and I'm like, okay, God planted the seed of his Holy Spirit in me. I must become like a tree and bear much fruit so that the birds come and rest in my branches, right? That people would come partake in the joy and the love that God has poured into me. But after a deeper study of God's word, we quickly realized that a lot of the New Testament authors and Jesus himself made sometimes subtle, sometimes overt allusions to the Old Testament. And this is one of them. If we take a look at Ezekiel, we will see very similar language that God used to describe the nation of Assyria. This is what it says. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field, its boughs grew large, and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plane trees like its branches." No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches. And all the trees of Eden envied it and, uh, that were in the garden of God. So we see this analogy in this uh, specific passage of God's garden, right, being the earth. And the different trees that God raises up are the different kings and different kingdoms in the earth. And in this uh, specific passage, God was referring to the nation of Assyria. That it became the tall cedar of Lebanon. There was no other tree that rivaled it in its glory and its beauty. Now here, um, God goes on to rebuke Egypt, saying, Just as Assyria was cut down, so Egypt, you too, will be cut down. But the point that I'm trying to make is that if Jesus was referencing this passage then it appears that he was trying to say that the kingdom of God is going to become similar to that of Egypt or Assyria in the sense it is going to be raised up to be a world power, to be a beacon of light and hope to all the other nations. That one day, the influence of the church will reach the edges of the earth, so much so that the earth will look upon the church for their refuge, for their protection, for their safety. And, and we see this idea throughout Jesus' teachings in the gospel that um, the church's influence around the world should be increasing, not decreasing, leading up to the return of Jesus. It's easy to see ourselves that it's the church versus the world. It's not. It's the church in the midst of the world or among the world. Now, again, we're supposed to look nothing like the world, right, but also be among the world so that our light might shine. And Jesus referred to this in Matthew 5. I'm sure you guys are familiar he said, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it is my passion and my desire, and I pray that it's yours as well, to see the kingdom of God become like a nation, a strong nation, reaching into all aspects of society that the world looks upon the church for hope, for refuge, for peace. And when I begin to think about this concept, I get very excited. And it might be my academic background and, and getting saved in college. But I think about this in, in the sense of, yes, the church should be regarded for our love, our service, our missions. That is a calling, and don't misunderstand me, very important in the body of Christ. But, but what about realms of like science and our doctors and medicine and lawyers and teaching, education, politics, musicians, what about all the other domains of society? I really believe that the kingdom of God is to be raised up as a tree so that all realms of society look upon the church for these things and in that way. How many of you like to cook? Is like to cook? I like to cook. Um, unfortunately, I don't have as much time on my hand, in my hands as I used to. Um, but something I've noticed about myself is that when I am cooking um, specifically eggs or maybe some chicken or something and I'm seasoning, I like to use bigger cut salt. You guys know like salt, that's a little bigger cut, right? Um, because when you get a bite of it, you get a, a little burst of saltiness. It's delicious. Um, but who knows when you're baking, if you use that same type of salt, that salt won't spread out into the dough, right? So when, let's say you're making a cookie, you bite into the cookie, you'll get a burst of salt, right? Instead of an evenness of the, the, some of the finer salt. I believe that it has become our tendency or a little too easy to become like the chunky salt. Right? So when it comes to things like digging wells and, and giving to the poor and missions and, and, and those type of things, the church is salty. The world looks to us like, yeah, there's no one digging wells like the church. There's no one preaching the gospel in other nations and feeding the needy like the church. But I can't help but ask the question, what about all other domains of society? What about, what about politics? What about government? What about medicine? I believe we have not become like the finer salt to spread into all aspects of the dough, if you're following my analogy. We might, it might be too easy to think, well, God isn't concerned with those things. Those things are, that, that, they belong to the devil. That, that's unredeemable. And, and I, I can't think of anything farther from the truth. Think about art, God's beauty, and his creative genius displayed through music and poetry. I can't think of anything more like the heart of God um, when I think about art and what he designed, the beauty of his creation. Or politics. If we go through the Old Testament, you will, not, um, it, you will not struggle to find a verse speaking on administering justice and standing up for the, uh, the needy. Um, and, and so we see that the governance from the perspective of God is very important. What about medicine? Studying the human body that God created and bringing healing to people. Or even science. And I got my bachelor's in biology, so this is closer to my heart. Studying God's hidden glory in creation. DNA, the complexity of the cell, this is all the genius of God in these different realms of society. In fact, in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was common for scientists to regard the sciences as something called natural theology. A lot of the early um, Christians and scientists were recognizing that when they studied biology, when they studied God's creation, it was naturally a theological exercise. They couldn't look at DNA and not recognize that, well, yeah, this was the glory of God. This was his genius displayed before us. And, and I, I want to um, continue on that point just a little further. If you would uh, um, bring your attention to the screen here, you'll see uh, an example of Harvard Seal 
back in 1884. This is really interesting to me because in the seal, you'll see um, one word in the middle, and that's veritas. That's Latin for truth. And then if you look at the inner circle, you'll see Christo et Ecclesiae. That means for Christ and his church. So one of the greatest educational institutions of that time recognized that truth and Christianity went hand in hand, right? And so they were excelling in academics for the glory of Jesus, for the glory of the gospel. But now if we fast forward today, we can look at the seal of Harvard. They've removed Christo et Ecclesiae. Now it's just truth. There was a shift in culture that took place from 1884 to today, right? Unfortunately, the minds that were for Christianity in Harvard now seem to produce minds that are pitted against Christianity and warring against the the proclamation of the gospel. So what kind of shift took place for, at one period of time, one of the top educational institutions saw a correlation between academics and the glory of God, and now we see the same educational institution pitted against Christianity and the work of God. So what happened? Well, we don't have enough time to get into all of the nitty-gritty details, but in short, I think it's a classic example of death by a thousand paper cuts. I believe there were many contributing factors to how we saw this shift take place from within the church and without the church. But if I were thinking as the devil would think, and I'm thinking of, okay, you know, in 1884, the culture of Harvard is not good. They are excelling academics for the glory of God and the gospel. If I'm thinking from the devil's standpoint, how do I change a culture? I have to attack one of the greatest sources of culture. And I believe that is the family. We see all throughout history that family has been a source of culture. You're going to come from a certain type of thinking and customs and traditions from the family or lack thereof that you grew up with. My first point for this morning is families either create or perpetuate a culture. Families either create or perpetuate a culture. Because independent of what they're teaching at school, independent of what they're claiming on the news or singing about in the latest music, there will be a culture in a family that either says, We stand up against the kingdom of darkness and some of the the anti-Christ, anti-things being spoken, or we will perpetuate the culture around us and just say, hey, you know, fit in, find friends, and, and, you know, live your best life, as our culture says. In fact, the very leaders of our society, right, um, our teachers, our governors, they came from families. Broken, perfect, everything in between, they came from a culture that was within their family. So if the devil can attack the fabric of family, which was ordained by God, and create a culture that is against the kingdom of God within the family unit, then our children, our young ones, our next generation, will carry that culture into a world which is already anti-Christ culture. But if our families decide to say no, decide to say, in my household, the kingdom of darkness stops here, decide to say the kingdom of God will reign in my doors, I will teach the way of the Lord, peace, love, joy will reign here, then we can stop the devil in his tracks from perpetuating his agenda, and we can inspire the next generation to carry it out into a culture that is against it into all domains of society. And, and I want to make a point here. This isn't just about having kids and how we raise our kids. If you are in relationship with anyone in your family, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, You have the ability to change the culture in your family, starting with you in your own heart. You can say, in my heart, the devil is not going to reign. I'm going to give peace. I'm going to give love. I'm going to give joy, starting with me. I don't care if my cousins listen. I don't care if my brothers listen. 
The fact that you have a family unit means you can begin to change the culture of that family starting with your own heart. I love Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. This is very powerful. The psalmist writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now what I love about this passage is this idea of children being arrows in our quiver, right? That we can almost load them up in our bow and shoot them into the domains of society. So when we raise up our children, when we raise up the next generation, we are sharpening arrows to pierce the devil's agenda wherever he tries to go and attempts to bring war on the kingdom of God. So I want to ask the question, what does it look like? What would it look like if we sharpened our arrows and we shot them into the many domains of society? I think we have a great example in the book of Daniel. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Daniel, I'll give you a quick synopsis of chapter one as we jump into it. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, just raided Judah, right, and took a bunch of captives into exile. And at this time, Daniel and his three friends were among those exiles, and the king wanted to have servants in his palace. So he took from the exiled Jews young men to raise up in literature, um, even, even in physical strength, to serve the king. And Daniel and his three friends were among those people. Let's jump into Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. It says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, what we don't see here is that Daniel and his three friends asked for favor to not partake in the diet of the Babylonians. They wanted to worship their God and remain faithful to the religious diet that they had and didn't want to eat the certain meats that they had. So they asked, can we just eat vegetables that we may worship our God, but will still you know, serve the king and be trained up in literature? So in the midst of a pagan nation, an unbelieving society, they remained faithful to their God and actually received wisdom 10 times more than any of the pagan believers around them. God glorified them and raised them up in the sight of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel eventually became the governor of Babylon, was eventually thrown in the lion's den, but miraculously saved by God. And through Daniel's interpretations of King Nebuchadnezzar's visions and dreams, King Nebuchadnezzar became converted to the God of the Jews, a pagan, a pagan king, all through one teenager saying yes. By the way, scholars think that Daniel was only 17 to 18, 18 years old when he was first brought into exile. 17 years old, that is so young. Kids sitting here, 17, he was brought out of his family but was strong in his faith to be raised up to be a governor to proclaim God's kingdom among a pagan nation. And, and what I love so much about this story is that Daniel was not called to be a priest in Babylon. We might think that raising up the next generation is raising up more pastors, more teachers. And trust me, as a pastor, I love that idea. If there's a calling on your life into the fivefold ministry, I'm all about it. I'm going to pour into you to see that happen. But Daniel here was not called to be a priest in Babylon, rather to be a governor and advisor to the king. But because Daniel was true to his culture that was created, he was true to his God, he was a man of prayer and had the gift of prophecy. I believe 
that there is a young generation that God is trying to raise up. He wants to raise up kids with the gift of prophecy in our government. I truly believe, I, I truly believe that God wants to raise up doctors with the gift of healing. That, that have knowledge of the sciences and, and medical advances, but also will pray for their patients while they're on the operation table. I believe God wants to raise up CEOs with the ethics of God's kingdom, of justice and mercy and grace, but also the wisdom of God, the leadership of God that gives glory to God, that the pagan world will look upon our business leaders, our doctors, our scientists, and be like, there's no way they could conduct themselves in that way. There's no way they can have that type of endurance. There's no way they can be filled with such wisdom if it wasn't for God. And, and I might be speculating here, but I think I'm pretty, pretty on with this. I don't believe that it began with Daniel. Again, Daniel was only 17. He had to learn his customs, his, the laws of the Jews, and his faith from somewhere. Whether it was his parents, his brothers and sisters, his rabbi, whoever, there was a culture and a family unit around him that empowered him and prepared him for exile. So much so that when he was brought into exile, when many Jews thought God abandoned them, he said, I'm still going to remain true to my God. And what happened? God used one teenager's yes to change the Babylonian nation, to change King Nebuchadnezzar. So when we think about our next generation and our impact on the next generation, we need to realize that the Daniels, the Davids, the Esthers need to be equipped for the work that they're heading into, and that begins with us. My second point of this morning, raising a family is an intentional spiritual work. Raising a family is an intentional spiritual work. Or I can even say that the family unit is a place for intentional spiritual work. Just so we realize that you don't have to be raising a family, you don't have to be a father or mother to be involved in this intentional spiritual work. It might be easy to look at the next coming school year and be bogged down with all the daunting tasks, right? Um, Making breakfast, um, getting the kids up early, getting them on the bus, all the different school events. And maybe you may be... um, uh, tempted to look at those things and think, man, this is going to be a drag. This is going to be tough. Some of the m- more mundane, um, you know, duties of the household or raising kids. It would be very unfortunate, and I would even say unbiblical, if we were to look at raising our families as a secular or unspiritual activity in our life. To neglect the fact that our role in our family is a spiritual work is to neglect the way God moved through families all throughout history. Joshua highlights this point when he's addressing the Israelites. He talks about Abraham, the forefather of our faith. Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led them through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now Joshua was retelling the story of the Israelites, but what I noticed in this passage was that it started with one forefather, Abraham, who had to leave the culture of his family who was serving other gods. And says, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to listen to what Yahweh is telling me, and I'm going to bring my family out into a new place. And we see how through his lineage, through his family, through his yes to God, his children were raised up to be, eventually become the nation of Israel. I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're raising children or you're associated with the next generation in any way, you could be interacting, influ- influencing, or raising the next Daniel, the next David, the next Esther. 
who was used to confer a pagan nation. You have no idea who you could be pouring into at this time. 20 years down the road, he becomes the president of the United States. You don't know. You could be similar to Abraham. God is calling you to leave the culture and the traditions of your family to say yes to him and to bring your family into a promised land of your own where you raise them in the truth of the gospel, in the peace of Christ, and in the love of God in your own household. Imagine if, just like the prophet Samuel went to David's family and said to the youngest boy, David, he's going to be king of Israel. Imagine if we had a similar experience to our young ones. How would that shift our perspective? Like, well, I'm, I'm raising the next president. He's going to be president of the United States one day. It would drastically change my approach in thinking about, well, I better pour into this one. I better raise them up in the, the strength of the gospel. I better be praying for them. This is not a far-fetched idea. When we look at Daniel, David, Esther, some examples, we are not meant to look at them as if they are separate from humanity and almost praise them in a way as if they were God. That's not the point of those stories. The point of those stories is to recognize how God has decided to work with humanity. The point is to shed light on the God who desired to choose young ones to raise, be raised up and to face off against pagan nations. So when we look at those stories, it's not meant to say, oh, well, you know, that was Daniel. No, it's meant to say God uses young people and will continue to use young people if we inspire them and encourage them to say yes to God. <clears throat> I say all this to say, your labor in the next generation is not in vain. Every time you do laundry, every time you cook, Every time you come home, it's been a long work day, but you need to pour into your kids and lead them through a Bible study. You need to drive them to Revolution Youth Nights on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. Every time there's a youth event, every time you have to sacrifice for your children, I encourage you, please do not see it as an unspiritual work. Recognize that if God has given you the ministry of sharpening arrows, on the day of judgment, he's going to ask you, how did you sharpen those arrows? And depending on how you choose to sharpen them and pour into them, you can deploy them into society to be weapons for the kingdom of God, having no idea what their impact will be into all domains of society. Your yes to this ministry, your yes to the next generation could change the influence of the church for the next hundred years. And, and I, don't, I don't want that to sound cliche or, or just a nice gimmick. That is biblical and true. Our yes here in this room could affect the next generation and will affect the next generation. In the same line of thinking, I want to give a warning. When things become mundane, when things become repetitive, when we do the same thing over and over again, it's very easy to adopt a religious mindset. It's very easy to think in our hearts, well, I've done this a million times, you know, I know how it's done, and just almost go through the motions of the, of the thing that we're doing. And we can lose the perspective of the spiritual nature of our work. I go through this myself. Every time I preach, every time I prepare a lesson, every time I meet with a student, every time I meet with a leader, I need to be in prayer and remind myself of the spiritual work. Doesn't matter what type of day I had. Doesn't matter um, what else is on my mind. I need to say, God, fill me with your spirit, maybe for the hundredth time today. Maybe I'm preaching the hundredth sermon this year. God, once again, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you empower me that I may influence this young one for, for the next generation? So I say that to, to encourage us to be on guard. The next generation is watching and is receiving what you may be indirectly communicating. 
Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. I have a question for all of us this morning. Would we want the next generation to mimic the life of faith that we have modeled? Do we live out a relationship with God that we, we are willing to say, I want every generation after me to model the life that I lived? It's a humbling question. One of my greatest fears in my own life and the life of the church is that if the next generation views a form of godliness with no true faith, obedience, passion, or desire for God's kingdom, then what kind of culture will we begin to perpetuate among our young ones? One of religion or one of pure devotion to Jesus? If we confess Jesus and say we're a Christian, but have no genuine growth, have no genuine love, don't, don't show true mercy, love, and forgiveness, then we are indirectly perpetuating a culture that says Christianity is all about confession with my lips, but no true power to transform. My third point for this morning, the sincerity of our faith will correlate with the success of the next generation. The sincerity of our faith will correlate with the success of the next generation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Can we say that to our young ones? Can we say that to the next generation? We need the Holy Spirit to speak to our conscience. Ask him and he will. God, am I living a genuine faith? Am I living out a, a, a life of faith that I want the next generation to model? If we were to repeat my life of faith in, in the lives of our young ones, what would our culture look like 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years? Again, the question is not, am I perfect? It's not, am I sinless? The question is, am I pursuing your likeness so that the family unit and the culture around me sees me pursuing your likeness? So what does this look like? What does this practically look like in our own lives? Well, this is hard to think, hard to, hard to think of because it's not necessarily what you do, but the faith you demonstrate. So for example, it may just be praying with your family for the actual needs and, and having true reliance on God's provision. It's, it's before scrambling to um, figuring out finances and moving things around. It's, hey, hey, family, we need to gather and we need to pray. We are in need of God's provision and actually believing that he is a God who will come through. It's making decisions that put God first. And that doesn't necessarily just mean putting church activities over other activities. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to decisions that God may lay on your heart that may be difficult and maybe your kids or those around you won't understand. But you're demonstrating obedience to God when it does not make sense. And that speaks volumes to the sincerity of our faith to the next generation. Another example could be showing grace and mercy, genuinely asking for forgiveness when you are not Christ-like to your family. I don't know about you, but this might be the hardest one on the list. Okay? You saw my three younger brothers. You, you can only imagine what that household is like. And especially getting saved in college and transitioning back home for my master's program. I, I, I got it online, so I was living at home. It was hard for me to, to recognize my selfishness, my, my pride, my arrogance among my brothers, and then ask them for, for forgiveness and tell them I'm sorry. And I'm not talking about a like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm talking about a genuine, I'm sorry, that was unchristlike. Please do not associate my actions with Jesus. That was not Jesus. 
and genuinely asking whoever, whoever witnessed something that I just know wasn't right in my heart, asking for forgiveness, saying I'm sorry, that wasn't Jesus. Now, that's hard. I have to swallow my pride. But think about it. What's the cost? Swallowing my pride and being humbled in a moment or indirectly communicating a powerless gospel that has no power to transform? Indirectly communicating religion in, oh, well, Mason talks about Jesus, but never once did he actually show forgiveness and show mercy or, or ask for, ask for um, my forgiveness. This can be a daunting task. But God is not asking you to do it alone. He's not asking you to live out the gospel separate from the empowering of his Holy Spirit. He wants to give you the grace and the strength to do it. If you feel yourself getting worked up, dealing with the next generation, dealing with a a restless teenager or one of your kids, take a moment, make a habit, take a moment and pray. Holy Spirit, I had a tough day today. Lord, would you just fill me with patience that was way beyond my capacity right now, that I may not communicate a gospel that that is apart from your power to transform. Coming home from a long day at work and, and, and knowing that it's just been a real difficult time and you have all these things on your mind, you get in the parking lot. God, let me pause. I'm about to interact with my family. Fill me with love that, that looks different than the day I just had. Fill, fill me with peace that I can impart that peace onto my loved ones. Take a moment and pause and rely on God for his filling and his grace to do it. And if you aren't in close relationship with the next generation all the time, make it a point to do so. Model a life of faith that you want our next generation to live out. And, and make an attempt to reach out to a young one. Whether it's just during service, you shake one of their hands, say hello, and say what's up. And, you know, they may be awkward and they may not want to talk to you. But th- that doesn't mean that you don't recognize your, the potential of your impact on the next generation and showing them love. Why don't you all stand to your feet with me as we close out this morning. <laughs> At this time, we're going to have our prayer partners, deacons and deaconesses and pastors come to the front. Prayer. I know all of us in here are involved with a family unit of some type. Whether it's you're raising a family, you're a mother or father, you're in a family as a brother, sister, nephew, niece, uncle, aunt. Or the only family you have is the family unit right here at Bethany. You are all in relationship somehow with the next generation. And the idea that we can miss the opportunity to pour into the Daniels, the Esthers, and Davids really grieves my heart. So this morning, as I pray us out, and as we dismiss, I wanna open up these altars to come receive prayer for your family, if you're a teacher and you're working with the next generation, for um, um, prayer for strengthening and empowerment in your classroom, which may seem like a secular environment, but God wants to move there. Prayer for loved ones who aren't saved, for God to move in your family. Take advantage of this time to pray with us as we just dismiss this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are God of the family. That God, you called Abraham many years ago to go out and begin a new family, a new culture that would be a light unto the world. And that you send Jesus to continue that proclamation that the light would travel to the ends of the earth that the kingdom of God would be a cedar of Lebanon lifted up so that all the nations would take refuge in its branches. And Lord, we recognize that that is only possible by the power of your Holy Spirit to empower us to influence the next generation. 
Father, I ask that you would begin to open our eyes, soften our hearts to see those around us that are in need to hear your word, who need to see your genuine love, and who need to experience Jesus through us, Lord. God, we just ask for your grace. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit on us and your young ones, that we may see a generation that proudly proclaims the gospel and is unashamed of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts and our minds this morning to see our personal responsibility to see that done in the lives of the next generation. We love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. And I just pray that you would move among us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Bethany family, for joining us this morning. As we dismiss, come down these altars and please receive prayer. And we'll see you tonight at our hunger and heart prayer service. God bless you.